and welcome to the Dice of Screaming podcast. I'm Randy. And it, that's Mike. Hey, welcome yeah, back. I'm back. Yeah, took a lovely vacation. Oh, went to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, had a great time, a lot of time in a kayak or in front of a fireplace, and then rounded it out with uh, a lot of good meals and family uh, up there. So, yeah, well rested and finally feeling like myself. <laughs> and fit and fine fettle, I may say. I've never been fettler. I don't know what but, a fettle is, but whatever a fettle is, I guess it's fit. Yeah. That, uh, and it's fine. Oh, man, is my fettle fit and fine. No, I uh, I can promise you no less from the little gaming podcast that could, but probably won't. We probably won't. <laughs> Fair. It's the little engine. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, last week I did the uh, solo podcast, did the uh, whole Starfinder, since the Humble Bundle's up there. And, yeah. Know, it's, uh, it's still going. So you can get yourself in at the time of this podcast. If you're curious about getting into Starfinder, it's a good time. You know, five bucks gets you right in the door with Core Rulebook and a few other fixings. Plus an adventure pass to start you out with if you really want to get your toe dipped in there. And I got to vouch, as a as a player, uh, that was a lot of fun. Okay. And I. Yeah, yeah. It, it filled the niche. Okay. It filled the niche of science fiction gaming uh, that, like, you know, we had a little shortfall. Uh, I mean, there was, there was Traveler, which has been with us since the beginning, oh, yeah. and, you know, there have been some other games. Uh, but Starfinder, I mean, it brought, it, it brought uh, just a whiff of the Shadowrun fusion of fantasy uh, and science fiction and placed it in a far more space uh born era instead of yeah with gods and uh, deities exactly and... they did a marvelous like unique uh, product there so i a little resentful that i, I didn't get to wax poetic oh. about it then but hey that's what happens when you take a vacation and flee to the upper peninsula i appreciate some of the feedback i've gotten with people telling me that uh, they appreciated like what was not in the humble bundle so if you wanted to step outside and get some things that maybe would help you like the armory and a couple other packages there. Uh, bring in more detail to your campaigns. I failed to mention the packed worlds is uh, not only uh, absent from there, but I did make mention that, hey, one thing, Paizo, you need to come out with a game mastery guide for Starfinder. I think that's really needed because giving people the tools necessary to construct a science fiction, fantasy, mythology, structured campaign. There's not a lot of core material you can use. I mean, you can pull other sources in. You could say like 2001 has some elements of all of that, but that's only from the fact that Arthur C. Clarke wanted to make it so that uh, high technology that's advanced enough appears to be like magic to many others. <laughs> and, you know, that that's what he was going for. And I think that, that that's worthy of exploration. And it probably didn't get mentioned. But, yeah, Paizo, if you ever uh, come across it, just a Game Master Guide or just uh, uh, something to help out the poor Game Masters who may have just stumbled into this game. And Yeah, a lot of newer arrivals have not had a lot of practice at uh, drafting their own material yet. They'll get it in time. But the production of materials that fosters that environment and that encourages that activity 
is always a win in my book. Yeah, and I wanted to make mention the deck of mini worlds is a useful tool. That, uh, just with a few cards, you can make your own world with its own uh, societies, technology, even races if you uh, delve deep enough into it. And it's a lot of fun to play with as just a mental exercise. Coming up with worlds on the fly is something that every science fiction game master needs to have at their disposal because players can go in the weirdest of places and you need to hey, i'm going to go off the edge of the map just to tick you off gm oh yeah well <laughs> the joke's on you i enjoy that stuff yeah like i have a plan for that but but i'm breaking your plan i have a plan for that <laughs> oh well <laughs> remember what would captain farstucker do Oh. <laughs> Probably kick a butt or two and get drunk, pass out in his cabin. Oh no! What does? Well, if you if you really want to know, his, you, what's his process? It's like, hmm. Let's think carefully. Is it sexy? I Can have a plan. It? Can we make it sexy? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was my misfortune to just have like the unsexiest crew. Oh my gosh! Just yeah. Yeah, bugs. They aren't Nobody sexy. gets me. Nobody gets me. The Sharon, yeah, the bug. <laughs> the Sharon Mystic. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bug, a psychic bug. So you know what I'm thinking. No, I respect the fact that you haven't slapped me yet. <laughs> Can only read surface thoughts. Don't we? It's impolite to do. Those are the only kind I have. <laughs> well, you are superficial <laughs> and often predictable, but that's what's the fun about. So yeah. Uh, it, I wanted to just revisit that, say, like, I forgot about the deck of any worlds and also thank everybody for saying, like, hey, I really appreciate you telling us what wasn't in the humble bundle that you might want to pick up if you jump in for the full price of admission on that one. Which, hey, you know, for some $40 still, in, in it goes to the Trevor Project, which is great. So always support oh, awesome. that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, so we're back. We're ready with a new uh, content. You're gonna have two of us today, so hopefully yeah. you don't. We don't uh, blow. We don't blow your mind. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we're gonna be talking today about. Oh well, today we're talking about the Western and gaming. Okay, the classic tropes of westerns as cinema, from which we have harvested so many of our own personal tropes for gaming. Uh, the way in which we set up the opposition, the way we set up the challenges, uh, you know, the the classic square offs, the, the the moment, you know, the climactic conclusions. Uh, these are movies that are riddled with tropes, and for this particular episode, we have chosen the films of Clint Eastwood. Okay, the the you know a series of films featuring Clint Eastwood that we just think of as classic westerns each with noticeably different tropes in play uh, and the reason for that is each of these are good examples of things that you should harvest and cherry pick and make use of uh, maybe these aren't the movies that you would pick but we're going to make an example of you know what are the elements inside these films that we harvested for gaming material ruthlessly and a little discussion on the various games that like they have a western dynamic to begin with and are ideal for this kind of cherry picking uh, although 
in my opinion, even regular fantasy campaigns uh, can benefit from this. I have hijacked so much material from like not only these movies, but from a variety of others just to make this work. Well, but, I'm going to mention, uh, if I can interrupt for a moment, uh, just to Mike Farrington also said, uh, as I was doing some research and uh, talking over with some folks about what maybe some of their ideas were, Mike Farrington, a uh, friend and listener of the podcast, uh, told me that most of the role-playing games that he's played have a resemblance to many of the Western movies. Thank you. Yes. And uh, he felt like the episodic nature as well as just the confrontation with the frontier. See, this guy gets me, you know, <laughs> just like that. Uh, yeah. So thanks, Mike. Yeah. I mean, the other Mike. Yeah. Entering into wild places, you know, uh, facing the untamed, uh, you know, being challenged by conditions uh, <laughs> as well as by individuals both actively hostile and you know, almost scorchingly indifferent. Few and far between are the allies. Many are the difficulties. I, man, I, the Western, it, to me, it's one of the best areas to go, like, combing for, you know, like, beach treasure. Okay, yeah. this, you're, you're out there with that metal detector looking for that lost gold coin. So, also, just to throw back to our other uh, earlier podcast that uh, Mike may not have been able to talk about, we did our Pathfinder 2nd Edition review. Got a, that got a lot of good comments. I think uh, one of the problems that we had with the uh, coming out with the uh, edition review, uh, along with their uh, new announced uh, remasters, they're calling it, is that some people seem to be very confused on what to do with you know a, a new edition or a reissue of the books but if you've been keeping up with that on uh the paizo site as well as some of their announcements which yeah i know paizo site is kind of it's rough i it, it's run by a hamster and a, a hamster <laughs> wheel a couple uh feisty gerbils and a hamster wheel they're trying to keep that site powered up sometimes it can be a moment to load up well, they try their best. Those goblin, it's also, that's what happens when you hire goblin computer engineers and IT techs. <laughs> that's their excuse. I mean, when their site's down, that's what you see is the goblins are at work on it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> They're hitting it with a heavier rock. <laughs> Must work. Um, fire! Fire! <laughs> that's you know, it's a good solution. <laughs> So yeah, they've been coming out stuff. Uh, the uh, I didn't expect this one to blow up as much as it did, but the um, post I put up about alignment, uh, kind of goodbye to alignment. Some people really like to have alignment, so I think that's a good, if you like alignment and you like using it, uh, you know, get those core rule books right now because uh, it's going away. They're replacing it with uh, uh, edicts. And an anthema, and it kind of works the same way, but yeah, you're going to have to squint a little bit to see the direct relationship between law, chaos, and good evil access that's in there. Yeah, the axiomatic concept is look, it's been a bit of a thorn in people's side, and there's been endless arguments about it for a long time. Uh, but I have to admit, being like just old school enough 
that I'm fond of it. You're right. Just because I spent so much time with it. Uh, it you know, although some people considered it a straight jacket, I saw that there was a lot of room uh, for a character to act semi-independently of the realignment. I mean, but like there should be some process of justification. Uh, with this, you know, uh, they're kind of keeping it looser. They're just acknowledging that like, okay, here's what motivates you. And here's where you won't go. You know, mm -hmm. where, where do you want to go? Where are you likely to go? What direction are you likely to pick? And what things are you like? Yeah, what Absolutely things are not. antithetical to your character's and then behavior? They just leave everything in between to the player, which I can't disapprove. You know, I don't really think of that as a deficit. Yeah, and getting any of the chromatic dragons, I didn't think I would like it as much. The chromatic metallic dragons, I love them. They've been, you know, long familiar friends. You know, the red, the red dragon and the gold dragon have always been. Hey, you know, and if D and D wants to like have a lock on those, that's okay. You know, yeah. I mean, in many respects, that is a true TSR product of early Dungeons and Dragons, and it is. I, I got to say, there's some justification to say right. that, like, that's us. We did that. Like, nobody did right. that before us, and it's ours. Okay, fair enough. It is. Uh, like, you know, owl bears, mind flares, things like that. You know, those are at D and D at its core. So, uh, moving past that, and. Like going, okay, we got to make some of our own stuff. Oh, good for you. Well, do just it, like man. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay just came out with different, you made your own dragon, or they had a few diverse types that you could pick from. But all dragons were dangerous to deal with. And I also like how Shadowrun may have had some kind of, oh, uh, certain dragons are bronzish or golden or reddish or green, but that has no indication on how they behave. You want to be careful when dealing with any dragon because, well, you're a meal. Oh, true. You're a tasty snack. Oh, which uh, I've I've always wondered where I would go with it uh, if a player was clever enough to intersperse himself quickly amongst the dragon's more valuable treasures. <laughs> you know, like just how chaotic and evil is this dragon? I mean, because if it's a really angry red, it might just be like... Hey, you know what? I will make that treasure pile, pile a slag heap just to screw you. Chaotic evil, it might do it. You got one that's lawful evil there, and they're like, all right, I will mono a mono this on the treasure pile because I am like, you know how long it took to gather this much? <laughs> this this is like 300 years worth of hoarding, and you are standing in the middle of it, and I do not like it, but I am not going to destroy this just to get you. Yeah. But I will find a way. I will get in there and mix it up. Uh, I, I've wondered about that. But yeah. as we move away from the, the classic tropes, we got to find new ways to work with dragons in different systems. So, yeah. All right. I'm in. Now, let's talk Astrogalomancer. Yeah. Well, Before we get kicking on the, the good stuff. I hear the Astrogalomancer is back from vacation as well. Yeah. He has returned with fresh dice. Oh. Yeah, he's feeling dicey. All right, so what's in our future? Ooh. All right, the Astrogalomancer gazes into the dice. And next week, we're looking at adjudicating the mind. We're talking about intellectual stats, the intelligence, wisdom, charisma, the non-physical ones. What do DMs do when they are presented with a gap between 
what the stats represent and what the player is capable of. Like mm. super high intelligence mage played by a guy who, you know, like it just really doesn't have much in the way of that kind of gift. They might be creative, but they're not Einstein. How do you make it challenging some of the time, but playable and resolvable? And there's multiple ways. There's a lot of ways to look at. We're going to have a peek at that. Like uncharismatic players playing a charismatic bard. Like it is a problem. Okay. People talk about it uh, on, on gaming boards. Like, how do you adjudicate this stuff? What do you do when the player is not a match for the character and mm. the stats say one thing and the player is, you know, up for another? All right. How to walk those fine lines. So we're going to be looking at that next week. And I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, so am I, because that's going to be a deep topic. So we're already into a deep topic as it is. So what we're going to do is take a watch. break right here, and then we'll be back and launch right into it. So stick around. All right. And we're back. So, hey, we're going to dive right in. So it's uh, Western Movie Night at the gaming table. So here we are talking about how the West, Wild West formed a lot of our opinions about how adventure gaming came to uh, be both with the episodic and uh, familiar themes of man versus nature, man versus man, and of course the conflicts that come with that are varied. That's a rich topic in and of itself to be covered just under one theme, I think, sometimes. But a literary criticisms aside of my uh, English courses. A dynamic teamwork. Right. Okay. And, uh, unlikely alliances. Uh, sudden betrayals. Hey, the Western is rife with magnificent material. Uh, and, you know, don't you think for a minute that gamers have not noticed it, uh, even years and years ago. Uh, thus, the creation of such games as Boot Hill, uh, or Aces and Eights more recently. Uh, yeah, Aces and Eights uh, kind of shares with Deadlands and it uses cards to resolve some of its actions, but also... Um, something you may not have heard of is uh, Dust Devils, which its primarily mechanic is the use of playing cards to resolve conflict resolution. And uh, I want to make a mention here, Western Hero from Hero Games, the champion system, also pretty popular with a lot of Western or Wild West style gamers, as well as uh, Gerb's Old West, the second edition, is out and available. So all those are easy to access game systems, some of the more esoteric ones, uh, like dark, Down Darker Trails, which is a Call of Cthulhu, um, Wild Western, as if it wasn't deadly enough with dysentery <laughs> and uh, Never sudden guns. Never sudden dysentery. Gun Never goes well if you dysentery. No, it doesn't, but um, <laughs> Down Darker Trails is also applicable because it's the basic role-playing system, so it, it can do anything, literally. On GURPS Old West. Uh, and Western Hero, that's one I'm not very familiar with. Champions. Uh, the oh, that's the Hero one. Games uh, okay. does it, but Western Hero seems to be pretty popular. A lot of personally, I have not played it, but if it has anything to do with the hero system, Champions, I. Uh, I, it only comes with the highest approval because it's a sturdy system. It, it allows you to, like GURPS, it allows you to do everything with just numbers. Okay. okay. And its well, core mechanic I mean, is easy to do. So. 
I still respect any version like uh, Dust Devils or Deadlands where like cards are in the mix. I, yeah, aces I, and eights, yeah. Nothing feels more appropriate than, than like having a, a deck. Like I got to cash in my chips. <laughs> and also a side mention, Pathfinder with its impossible lands area in Galarian. Alkenstar is a low magic zone due to the ancient conflicts of wizards beforehand. And it is pretty much a Wild West area. Savage Knolls replacing a lot of the standard Indians and as well as a bunch of lurking zombies from the north from Geb. Why those shield wardens got their work cut out for them. And uh, yeah, Gunslinger, the home of the Gunslinger, Alkenstar, although that's where it originated from. It's not its pri primary residence anymore. It's spread out a little bit, but yeah, <laughs> you, want, you want some uh, dual action revolvers? Well, Congratulations when you're level 17 on crafting them. Because that's mm -hmm. what revolvers take. But gunpowder is rife in that area. So Well, they make you work for it. Oh, which, I yeah. mean, look, from a DM perspective, my hostility to a concept is not rooted in, I just don't want the player to have it. Uh, it's rooted in, like, level one is level one. Okay? You know, you should not have mm -hmm. level 20 gear at level one. Uh, <laughs> and... Like, if you're hunting for, like, how can I get that plus five Holy Avenger by level three? Like, that's where you got to nerf people. Like, okay, okay, let's have a narrative arc, like a, a course uh, of adventure that you work your way up to this, like, incredible stuff. So that that's what you're using when you're facing things that are worthy of that level of year. I, you know, that I support. So, you know, I, I don't feel like they, they were too hard on the nerfing there. Oh, no, no. Anyway. No, but with this preponderance, I mean, look at that variety of Western game possibilities out there. Right. Uh, that also tells you that, like, just the mere fact that these exist and in such a wide variety tells you how much gamers love the classic Western tropes. And for this, we've picked a series of Clint Eastwood movies, not because we feel like leaving out a bunch of others. But because of how many movies he's been in, it allows us a really easy path to look at widely varying scenarios and challenges while just discussing a series of movies we also happen to think are pretty awesome. Right. So um, that established the games that we're talking about here. Maybe there's a few other ones. Hey, if you found some other Wild West or Western style uh, role playing games that we didn't cover here specifically, and this is not an exhaustive list. This is just an attempt. Yeah, send us a note because yeah, we love looking into stuff that we haven't seen before. Right, Dust not... Devils was a nice discovery for me, and I uh, jumped into that one. And Down Darker Trails, I've been aware of, you know, for Call of Cthulhu, but I'm always wary, like you know, it's <laughs> it's, it's pretty bad being an outlaw on its own, you know, the, out on the frontier. You just make it worse by throwing in Cthulhu in there. Well, hell, but there is a there is a couple of good scenarios that maybe we, one of these days we should if we ever revisit that I'll talk about a couple of good scenarios that lend themselves well to a Wild West without uh, initially blowing everybody's sanity. <laughs> oh man, yeah, <laughs> night train from Deadlands. A train pulls up in the middle of the night, full of vampires, and they just open. Kick open doors and uh, start flying out. Night train to whoop ass. 
hard to survive, but uh, very fulfilling with a saloon gal <laughs> with a shotgun full of silver dollars. Yeah, every time I tell one of these, it's 10 bucks down the drain, but who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. Totally worth it. <laughs> oh, man, those were some good games. I, I had a lot of fun with Deadlands, too. Um, Lightning Jack Hanna with the uh, wood axe just chopping off their heads as they came through the door. <laughs> well, I, like, I, I don't think that was... Was that right around the time that Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, had come out? And I just wanted... No, that's well, well before any oh, of that man. came out. That was back in the 90s, my friend, so... Oh, you were man. well ahead of that, but yeah, then uh, breaking off the uh, handle as the uh, one of them grabbed the handle and broke it in two. Then you said, "I steak. I have a steak. <laughs> Take that, you grand bastards!" Oh man. Well, let's start. Actually, since we're on that topic, let's start with what could be argued is the most mystical of these Clint Eastwood movies we're talking about: Pale Rider with its, its implications leading back to High Plains Drifter. There's a little of the magical that lurks. Or supernatural, yeah. Yeah, a little of the supernatural that lurks in Pale Rider, the implication that right. this is a vengeful spirit. Right, if you watch the end of um, High Plains Drifter, he disappears into the haze at the end. And it's very eerie how, it, how they do it as well. I mean, it's an easy camera trick but well done yeah it's not hard to do but uh you know it's visually appealing you know it, it now, has pale writer had a specific look to it though where i would say like high plains drifter was sort of it had sort of a ghost story element to it pale writer had almost this weird gothic western atmosphere to it, it Everything was at once, uh, you were seeing like brand new towns just erupting out of nowhere. You know, the, the woodwork and the framing was brand new, crisp, wasn't worn down. But on it, the people were worn down. <laughs> uh, the incredibly hard work of mining, the old-fashioned way, like panning and digging and, you know, rooting around in a riverbed. Uh, you know, it's the gold rush. I mean, well, the tail end of it, where now it has become big business rather than happenstance and good and fortune. Like many Western themes, as it becomes big business, this brings us to our villain, which, uh, specific to Pale Rider, is instead of the cattle baron or land baron, this is the mining baron, the guy who he wants every plot of land in this area. He wants every scrap of dirt. Uh, <laughs> far out in any, desist, in any distance uh, that he can find. And he wants it because he's got big plans, and it should be his anyway, and he's offering fair prices, uh, which, you know. Well, yeah. bear to his mind, because yeah. his greed is that. I mean, great. he's made so much money as it is, and yet that's not enough. He's got to have it all. Yeah, that just that, like, almost crazed hunger just to have it to have it. <laughs> just there's no there's no negotiating with that and so it's coming down to that boiling point where it's i'll hire thugs to chase them off and they won't get a damn thing if they don't sign uh, you know i will terrify them until they finally consent and, and they call out when the girl goes out and calls when her dog gets shot 
calls out for a spirit of vengeance. And uh, there he hears it. Yeah. And behold, on a pale horse, <laughs> he appears at the edge of town, just kind of watching them beat up her uh, so-called adopted or common-law father-in-law, stepfather. Yeah. Played by Michael Moriarty, uh, most excellently. As they're beating a the poor car out of Michael Moriarty's <laughs> hard scrabble mire, they look for a moment, he's there, they look away just for a second. Completely gone. <laughs> oh. And that's the homage to oh, that's the only real supernatural element you get. It becomes a very human person, takes the persona of a preacher, which in his own way, it it scares the mind baron because now he's gonna give him it'll give him hope. That's way worse than you know, like anything else. <laughs> you know, just They'll dig in there like ticks if, if they have faith. That's the worst thing that could have happened, is to have a preacher show up. Uh, and, of course, you know, like the mind boss tries everything to bribe. The, I'll build you a new church. And, you know, like, all you got to do is get these people to sign off on this land. You know, I'll give you a comfy position. It's like, well, a man can't serve two masters. You know, God and mammon. Mammon, of course, being money. Uh, yeah, uh, just a wonderful little bitch slap to, you know, like the, the person who, like, I, I don't get you. <laughs> How? How does money mean nothing to you? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a really well-written script. It's well-executed, much better than... Cleanly shot. Uh, ...High Plains Drifter. And there's a weird ethos. Like I said, I get this almost antique, rustic look. But I noticed that all the people have scars and are worn and are uh, they're tired. Yeah, I mean, and this is one but of, the buildings are crisp and new, and usually you see the reverse, you know. Oh, the decrepit western town is will actually will bring up that as right. the setting in a later movie. But in this one, you're seeing like the boom town in its prime. You like the you feel now, energy from then the people, the like the the poor miners, I mean, they're living in tents. You know, yeah, they're, they're just living like hobos. And you see this fabulous contrast between uh, the people who are literally, you know, doing anything they can to scrabble along and to have a little something for themselves. They're gambling on the possibility of striking it rich. And if it works, you know, they're, they're made. Uh, and if they give up that dream, uh, they could theoretically have a more stable life, but the opportunity for better is gone. Uh, whereas the big guy, he's already got the best there is. <clears throat> Everything is beautiful and clean and crisp and well-built and all of that. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's, you know, you can work for them, and that's the only way to share. You know, that's the only way to get a slice of that pie is you accept your role in that person's <laughs> fiefdom. And these are people who don't want to do it. Uh, so in comes the Pale Rider. Yeah, now he's called the Preacher throughout most of it. And as well, he uh, makes a mention about he has no name. He, yeah. just, he just, that's, he is who he is. Nobody really asks him. They just assume when he comes out wearing the collar, that he's a preacher, even though he beat the Levantaro, the guys with the uh, hickory stick. Nothing like a good piece of hickory. But but all of this, you know, slowly spirals out of control. Uh, you notice in one particular scene that he has bullet holes in his back uh, that clearly 
like a group of people shot him or somebody shot him six times. Uh, and this entire situation escalates until a gang of <clears throat> lawmen. Yeah, Marshall Stockton, a man for hire. hire. Yeah, he is law enforcement for hire. He will murder anybody, and he's got a badge, so he'll trump up some kind of reason and just lie. <laughs> he'll take your money and kill who you want killed and assert that there was a good and lawful reason for having done it. And this entire scenario seems to have been engineered. Like, you know, this person is in this time at or in this place at this time to escalate this situation, to draw out those individuals, the people who put those bullets in him. And oh, he gets his revenge. Yep. And there's an interesting scene that uh, this allies to Deadlands is there is a character that you can play. It's an option that you can be one of the harrowed or returned. Now, the undead gunslinger and the undead gunslinger, the harrowed are those who returned and they have returned not because their will to survive is so great. Their will uh, does help them, however, but they are animated by a spirit, a manitou normally, but a malevolent spirit that returns them to unnatural life, but they have conquered it, but it fights against them and occasionally asserts itself during moments of weakness. <laughs> There's an eternal struggle inside. And you kind of see this in Pale Rider. There's one uh, part where he walks into town and the mine bosses, goons, wanting to not, they've been upstaged by Stockton and Marshall Stockton and his men. So they want to reassert themselves and the boss's good graces so they're going to get him while he's in there getting a cup of coffee <laughs> at the uh, cafe and he's just sitting in there with his back to him he's sitting in there with his back to the door well let's get him they bust in and he's gone just like that and they empty out their revolvers and uh, rifles and shotguns and as they're reloading he steps up you done <laughs> and that's the good part of being a herald is that you have control of it. Yeah, he shifted out of existence for a moment and reappeared from the shadows in another. It's all just plausible enough that it might not need a mystical explanation, but you're constantly left with the feeling in this movie that like something not natural is taking place, that this is some spirit full of vengeance. Yeah, and he gives him a moment to leave with just that, you're done. <laughs> and Several of them are like, oh, okay, we're out. They, they just step away. But a few others, they're ornery enough. They're, they fiercely start reloading, and then he just kills them. Yeah. Uh, hard lesson. That, you know, <laughs> if you haven't figured out midway through this incident that it is not going well for you, that's on you. <laughs> so, he, he didn't kill them. Those idiots killed themselves they, yeah, they killed when, they pro them. when they provoked this situation. Uh, but to give the conclusion, you know, like the mind boss is not killed by the pale rider. Uh, he's killed by the townsfolk after all of his goons, all of his minions, all of his corroded lawmen, uh, all the opposition Work. that was dangerous has been destroyed by the pale rider and the townsfolk as a team, they all walk into the mind boss's office and all of them put around in him. 
I mean, they, they shoot him, and then other people come in and shoot him. Michael Moriarty, I believe, was the one who fired the opening shot there. Yeah, he, he goes in there with a shotgun, kills him, and then, yeah. But at the but, director said it, uh, in the theatrical release, you don't get to see the other people putting bullets into him. Ah, okay. Yeah, the, the director's cut, the one you might just caught on cable, as them all coming around and, and taking but, a, sh- a turn, putting a shot in there. Yeah. yeah, they've, you know, they're like, we're done arguing about this, you know. <laughs> It's like you lost all your goons, you lost all your corrupt lawmen. You know, this is how much power you really have. Like you alone, you have no power. So they finish him off. But uh, interesting side note: the very ending with the girl uh, calling out uh, to the pale rider as he leaves. Preacher, you know, is a little reminiscent of Shane, yeah, the much older movies uh, starring Alan Ladd, which is considered a western. Yeah, classic. she calls for him, and and of course he at the end of the movie, uh, just like an high plains drifter, just fades into the background. So that's a good one. Um, it uses a little bit more weird stuff than Boot Hill or Aces and Aces, perhaps prepared for, but definitely a western hero in Gerb's Old West are easily adaptable to that because they have a very open system, as well as a. Uh, a tame down down darker trails or deadlands. Obviously, we've been talking about that one, but Pathfinder obviously uh, can easily incorporate any type of returned or recent with the returned character uh, into that trope. Now let's talk the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, yeah. So this is a uh, this is a very classic movie. It's uh, Sergio oh, it's Leone. Compressed. Oh, but. Yeah, it's it's influenced so many people. Quentin Tarantino calls it probably the best shot western. Yeah, in oh. history, it's it's beyond incredibly fast paced. You know, it doesn't look like it. It's not one of those things where it's it's got the jarring sensibilities of today's like high spit high paced filmmaking, but it moves the story so quickly from place to place, from event to event, from journey to journey. It's just fantastic. Uh, it's a campaign in a movie. Okay? Right. This is how uh, a Western campaign would unfold, but also adjacently a fantasy campaign could unfold with many different settings. You go from your typical dusty town to a war zone. Oh, yeah. Tra- a transition to that. So, well, it the works. quest marker goes off over the heads of various individuals. <laughs> yep, like, all oh, this another side quest. Like, oh crap! I'm captured. How do I get out of this? Oh crap! I, I, I need this ingredient in order to accomplish this greater task. Ah, ah. Uh, over yep. and over again for all of them. Now we have the Lee Van Cleef, um, Clint Eastwood trope, Primus song. If you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Whatever happened to Levi and Cleef? Oh. No, I, Levi and Cleef, Clint Eastwood, and I forget the third guy. Eli Wallach. Was it? Yeah. Huh. All right. Man. But the three of them are all after the same prize, and it is just an endless series of turning on one another, turning the tables, uh, getting out from underneath you know, or narrowly escaping death from one of the other's machinations, all for a treasure uh, whose location only one of them, you know. Yeah, yeah, he gets you, it from a dying man so that then Eli Wallach has to keep him alive because only he heard it. He's not sharing it. Yeah, they were running scams together, and then he finally took the money and ran and left his partner behind. <laughs> but it just back and forth. Uh, 
fascinatingly, good, bad, and the ugly doesn't have a true enemy. And that's why we included this one is because yes. unlike the, yeah, this one has the elements of a campaign level event with a lot of journeys and a lot of twists and turns, but it doesn't have a true enemy. The three of them are opponents, but they're almost frenemies. Almost. You know, they've, they've got that relationship where like, look, if I can find a way to accomplish my goal without having to kill you, I'd prefer that. But if I have to kill you, I will. Uh, and ultimately, in the final showdown, since this is an older movie, no, you know, like we're don't feel bad about spoilers here. Uh, you know, Lee Van Cleef's character does get killed because, well, he is the bad guy. He's the more yeah. ruthless. Where uh, uh, Clint Eastwood in uh, playing reprising the man with no name and Eli Wallach the. Uh, Somewhat flawed, or very flawed, but <laughs> somewhat relatable oh, yeah. outlaw. He, he is just a thoroughgoing outlaw. He has no shame. You know, like, uh, he, yeah, Eastwood's character. He's technically the good guy, but even so. Yeah, not, yeah. He is not intentionally especially wicked, uh, if he can get away with it. In fact, you know, Eli Wallach's character lives. Uh, no, you know, I just wanted to mention as uh, an aside here that that graveyard at the end, the climax, oh, it's a real place. It's obviously it, it's just not built for that location. It's called Sad Hill, and the amount of graves in there is staggering to the mind, and they make good effect of that. So you have to find where is the gravesite. It's Archibald Tate, but. Uh... Yeah, yeah, this is a MacGuffin case. Yeah, and it, it's not it, in that one. It's the one right next to it, the <laughs> unnamed grave, and that's where they dig up the gold. And of course, you know, after all he's been through at the hands of Eli Wallach's uh, outlaw, Clint Eastwood gets his revenge. Now, dig, throws down a shovel, and then Lee Van Cleef shows up. You can dig faster than one. <laughs> then they have a. Three-way stare down at the end, you know, like, who's going to draw first? And one of the most dramatic moments and well shot that just adds the tension, draws it out, and you're just waiting for one of them to move. And finally, you know, you see it happen. Very good choreography and music by Enrico Morricone. Morricone. I always have a problem with where to put the accent, uh, where to land it on that one. But, uh, oh, Morricone. Yeah. Morricone? All right. I think so. Hey, I'll go with it. Yeah, Enrico Morricone's uh, score for that one is just dazzling, and it's been homage so many times. But Good to Bad the Ugly is really a, a way to look at how a campaign can unfold with various types of uh, sub-quests, new uh, goals that are an, an ever-changing dynamic between three principal adversaries that are literally the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, they really are. So the movie's well-made and well-named. But, you know, what you would have to mind from there is, like, if you had not just a diverse cast of characters against each other, or players primarily, but how players, if you could break the characters down into various aspects of Clint Eastwood's man-with-no-name personality, this would be a good idea of how to have unrelatable or unlikable allies with uh, the outlaw that 
Eli Wallach is, as well as the ugly one, as well as Lee Van Cleef's very uh, menacing and almost ruthless character. Angel Eyes. Angel Eyes, yeah. Oh, well, that's, yeah. That's what he calls them. So, yeah, so <clears throat> he looks, that's a really good one. He looks like such a class act, but he really is the most ruthless of the three of them. Yeah. I think the bandit is thoroughly ruthless. I mean, he'll, but you expect it from him. What's menacing about Lee Van Cleef is he looks so formal. He looks so clean cut, like the, the professional of the bunch. And in his own way, he is every bit as ruthless as the bandit. Oh, man. Well, they're all as capable of the same level of ruthlessness when crossed. It's just he uses a lot more callously and has no regard for its use. The others, it's just a tool to get them to the next step. Yeah. Him, that's the preferred method. <laughs> if the other ones work, you know, diplomacy, I'll subtlety. I'll do that if I have to. Maybe that's... Maybe it, they're, but they're my not default a, setting is put two rounds in you and then, you know, worry about it later. <laughs> oh, man. Now. Yeah, we're going to talk about the other one. Uh, we got two more, but then we'll give a wrap-up. But We're going into a little break time here, so... We're going to take a moment out, and uh, we'll be right back. So continue sticking around. All right, and we're back with the second half here. And so, yeah, we're talking about For a Few Dollars More. Now, this is obviously a sequel. We've talked a little bit about, um, what's it, A Few Dollars? Fistful of Fist, Dollars. Fistful of Dollars, right. And uh, it's ties to Yojimbo, but in this case, we're just going to move right on to its sequel, which uh, this had Lee Van Cleef playing a new character that ended up uh, being pretty successful in some of other uh, Sergio Leone's uh, Spaghetti Westerns, as they were so called at the time. Uh, but in this one, he shows up as Colonel Mortimer. Now, his name changes in uh, some of these other movies, but he's all dressed the same and has that little uh, pack of Always different... Always such a smart dresser. I mean, man, whenever Lee Van Cleef was in a in a movie, he was like the snappiest dressed to one of the bunch. Yep. <laughs> and, um, of course... You never saw him looking like a scruffy hobo. Yep, like uh, the man with no name. Yeah. Unshaven. Uh, it's why they made trail such worn. a terrific uh, pairing. Because you had these polar opposites. You know, the, the dusty trail dog that just drifts into town looking like 20 miles of bad road. And then Levon Cleef, who just comes in looking like, uh, you know, the cat that got the cream. Yep. <laughs> I loved it. I, I love it. Yeah, now this one has lacks a lot of the fantastical elements that we talk about, like Down Darker Trails, <clears throat> for a reason. But also Deadlands and uh, Pathfinder probably find a little less here. But this is themes. More traditional opposition. This is an escaped bandit. This is a bounty hunt with two competing bounty hunters teaming up. To accomplish yeah, the, the same uh, goal. an outlaw, a notorious outlaw, El Inio, which is played by Gian Maria Volante, big Italian actor at the time, and it played in the first movie, Fistful of Dollars, as uh, the villain in that one. <clears throat> the man with a rifle meets man with a gun. And uh, it also includes Klaus Kinski as the hunchback, which is fitting. And uh, <laughs> It has a diverse cast of characters that you meet throughout it. The old prophet, uh, the innkeeper's wife. Um, 
I really like this movie because it shows you the diversity that you can salt the setting with of different characters, like, you know, um, as well as the homage that the Mandalorian pays to this one. When we're first introduced to the man with no name, he's coming through the town, and all you see is that pistol on his hip with the cobra on it. Now, um, that cobra also is on Snake Plissken's uh, belly <laughs> in Escape from New York. So that's an homage. That That's how much it echoes through. And the Mandalorian, when he walks into that, just parts of the doors, the swinging doors, the saloon. It's just like when the man, shot Mandalorian, shot remake. Mandalorian walks into that cantina at the edge of town and surveys his prey. That's the things I wanted to salt there that are reminiscent. So that... It, that is so iconic a shot that it's echoed throughout the ages. It, it's influenced countless directors and artists and producers. It's made a lot of deep impressions on people. And I think that this campaign, or this would represent as a Western campaign, the height of two new characters who have the same profession. Bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Oh, well. And, you know, they end up making an accord by Colonel Mortimer. Initially, uh, Clint Eastwood's character, the man with no name, does not want to share in the bounty of El Enio. But because he is surrounded by a gang of ruthless thugs, he will uh, make an exception for this and buckle down and work with another person. He will be first to work solo, but Colonel Mortimer says that two are going to have to do this. And between them, there's more than enough. He oh. just wants El Inio. And it's revealed in the film that it's a personal. And they apparently killed his uh, daughter. Oh, shame on you, bandit. <laughs> and so this is a personal one. He's going to let, uh, he adds it up that all the members of the gang are as much or more than El Inio by himself. Although El Inio commands the highest bounty and is the most wanted. The rest of the his goons, the rest of the rabble together <laughs> is almost twice as much. Yeah, yeah. So there's quite a haul of swag to be made picking these guys off. Uh, and man, uh, you know, there's it's split between profit and revenge. You know, those are you have two separate motivations, uh, and like a pretty in this one, a much more clear and traditional opposition. You know, you have a, a traditional villain that, and collection of villains. You, you got to go through the, the goons to get to the mini boss to get to the boss. So uh, it's a classic, deservedly, and for good reason. Yeah. Nino, the baby, the large giant that provides El Indio with his uh, <clears throat> special cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 1965, with your special cigarettes. No, no, no. It's a little bit more than that. But yes, they are the two closest compatriots. And things, of course, go awry, and they end up getting captured and beaten by them, but then manage to get their way out at the last minute and get enough of their gear back that they can make one last attempt. And they do. So, nice showdown all around. And uh, it ends with a uh, drawdown between 
Curdle Mortimer, Lee Van Cleef, and Alinho with uh, Clint Eastwood kind of resetting the uh, rules of the duel, which was very much in Alinho's favor. So nice job on also how to basically let one player character who has a decidedly deeper connection to wanting to off the villain than just another character bigfooting it. The satisfaction of seeing a fair fight. Yeah. And that brings us to the main part of the duel, uh, the Ethos. A lot of Westerns have a shootout or drawdown where two hard asses, for whatever reasons, come to conflict. And it's the... And it's one-on-one. Shoot uh, a shootout at high noon. You know, uh, it's person-to-person. It's personal. Uh, it's representative. Instead of, like, hurling armies at one another, uh, this goes back to the mythic days of Homeric epics where, like, the champions of two armies would go forth and face one another... Uh, and like this would set the tone or even decide the course of the day. You know, will 10,000 die or will only, you know, one or two? Uh, the gunfighter is a return to that ethos. Yeah, the duel, which, you know, only America is unique in a lot of ways with gun violence, but I'm going to say this the gunfighting ethos is really only here. We had some duels in England and France and uh, Germany and all that, but you were dealing with a different, you were dealing with one shot. The settlement of a grudge via a duel is very different from the gunfighter per se that, you know, in other cases uh, elsewhere, it was a thing that you might be called upon to have to do in the event of a crisis. Only in America did it become a profession. Almost. Doc Holliday and a few others were, if you could call them, professional gunfighters or murderers. And I'm not trying to cast dispersions. I'm just saying that they were men of their day. Doc Holliday had a death wish. He was in constant pain, and he wanted to go out. But he was determined not to go out by ending his own life. He could have done that a long time ago. So I'm he just going to do something really dangerous. I'm going to do this on my own terms. And uh, Wyatt Earp wrote about my friend Doc Holliday. And in his book, he details how much Doc Holliday really put down to being a professional gunfighter, how he would survey an area that he was in, who he would determine he would want. And he looked specifically to provoke people. He looked for the easiest one to provoke, the bully, the coward. These are guys that he can prey upon or hopefully deliver him what he wants. And more to the point, uh, Nobody's really going to miss them. Like, right. If worse comes to worse, you know, people may want to profess a desire to revenge them, but ain't nobody, you know, the world is not terribly wounded by the loss of such persons. So, the likes of Ike Clinton, yeah, are not yeah. going to be missed in the world. So, either way, there's a lot to uh, White Earp and uh, Doc Holliday. I would suggest you read his book. Um, it is a story of professional gunfighting, and it is something that we want to bring out in the trope of the Western before we close this out as saying that the Western trope is ripe with the adventure game, but the solo duel, it doesn't fit well in a role-playing game. So sometimes Westerns are best played with just a few people. Like, the best West, 
West Western Hotel, sorry. The best Western movies function with a small group of dedicated player characters that have some connection to an event or each other. And that's the current theme that we didn't really get to discuss here because we were discussing mostly movies that moved us and had some type of hook that drew us in and said, we want to put that into a role-playing game. Hey, and you know what? The the squaring off, we've ripped off this trope many times where a particular player character, uh, whoever the strongest fighter of the party is, uh, and like the dispute between the party and someone else is going to be settled in the end by one-on-one -on -one combat. Uh, and I have, I have hijacked that a few times over the years for key events. That's not the way I would let it unfold in every game. Why? Because obviously you want everybody involved. You want everyone equally engaged most of the time. Uh, but if it's a duel between mages, like you send forth our mage versus their mage, let the best mage win. If it's duel of fighters, you you can place that test in front of your players. You just can't use that one a lot. Some of these other tropes are very accessible. The one versus one, it's a much tougher one to make a judgment call about where to place it. But once in a while, like once or twice in a campaign, it's a beaut. Yeah, I love it. I, I'm not going to apologize for it. Yeah, so that's going to bring us to the last movie in here. Yeah. And this is our biggest one. and Personal uh, so favorite. This, again, uh, goes right to your more traditional games, Aces and Eight, Boot Hill, Western Hero, all that. This Unforgiven. Is Unforgiven, yep. And this is Clint Eastwood's. Uh, Magnum Opus is a Western. As good as Pale Rider is, as good as that movie is, he outdid oh, yeah. himself. He could have just sat back and let that one go. But here was a script that he had wrestled with for a better part of a decade or more to find the right people for it. And uh, he finally did. And so they got the cast and, and, and director and added a few roles. Morgan Freeman... This is a uh, and uh, Gene Hackman. This is a. These guys were heavy hitters that were maybe B listers, but here they came and they all everybody brung their A game, and um, I wouldn't even call them B listers. I mean, honestly, I well, Gene Hackman was best remembered for the French Connection. Oh yeah, and Popeye Doyle. Popeye Doyle. And, but he got his oculus for that, but hadn't done anything in a while. He'd been in a couple of good pictures. Hey, I, I love Gene Hackman. Well, I love him. Superman, you know. Well, I mean, while he, he was, likes Luther, but he... Hackman was much bigger in the 70s than he, you know, was at, at like, by the time, uh, you know, like, this was coming out in the 90s. The tail, end, tail end of the... But uh, I thought he was great. I don't, well, yeah, he, I, I mean, everything he was pretty much in is, is a great one, even Hoosiers, you know. Kind of a shameless fanboy. You know, I think he's a great character actor. And also Morgan Freeman, you know, he was doing a lot of good work at that time. <laughs> you know, with the Shawshank Redemption and all yeah, that I mean, he's, around yeah. that era. I mean, he was, but he was getting the work he finally deserved. And uh, Eastwood was wise to, you know, pull into that one. But this one, um, this is more of a gush. This movie pretty much deconstructs the Western completely. I mean, it takes and it apart at its core. There's it nothing glorious or... Yeah, it, it demystifies it. It de-romanticizes it. Some people complained about its brutality. They, they you know, felt it was just really unpleasant to watch because it was so brutal. And it was like, 
Well, this is probably a far more honest depiction than the incredibly muted, soft violence of previous Westerns, where, like, you see a guy fall off a roof after getting shot with a shotgun. Yeah, let, let's just spell it out, folks. That is not what that looks like in real life. And that, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have seen comparatively few terrible things during my life, but having seen a few terrible things, you know, yeah. you you understand going in that most Westerns are meant for entertainment, not for gritty realism. This is the movie that just says, why don't we stop We're going to talk trend. about what getting shot in the belly is like. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to make this as awful or close to as awful as we can make it and still make it viewable. <laughs> it, they did not go splatter gore or silly the other direction either. Uh, there was still a certain muting, but it was brutal. The violence was sudden, unpredictable, uh, and then, you know, haunting after it was over, uh, as opposed to glorious, romantic, and awesome. Uh, <laughs> there was no glorious, romantic, and awesome. <laughs> if the movie killed anything brutally, it was delusions. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you know. Well said. I, I don't think you can say it better than that. And I think that's a good point to make on this film is that, you, you know, it killed any romanticism of the Old West, you know. Yeah. And uh, features, uh, to give the, the fastest synopsis we can, uh, it features a guy who has got two kids, his wife has passed away, uh, and he's running at the hog farm out in the boonies and things are not going well and you know for bill money things are not doing good for him when this fella shows up with the promise of a fat reward you know not not huge but very substantive for that time period and this is all because uh, somebody slashed up a prostitute uh, cut her face and the girls put, pulled their money together to get revenge on the scumbag who did it. The billard party of the billard parlor <laughs> that no one plays billards with. Yeah, the Lord. pool table hasn't been used in years. <laughs> oh, you can play pool if you want, but nobody really comes here to do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, That the billiard hall girls want their revenge. They want justice, and the sheriff won't get it for them. Why? Because the sheriff is all about keeping the peace. Well, he whoop he he whips one of them. Oh sure, uh, you know, it, it's not to him. It's not a hanging offense because nobody died. It was yeah. an act of violence, obviously. And they tried to make an appeal that, you know, look, whooping, whooping he's going to give out ain't just like with a belt. It's with bull yeah. whip. Oh, it's going to sting, but uh, nope. The ladies they want blood. Uh, you know, cutting up. Somebody's face scars him for life. Uh, you know, they, they, they try to, the, the guy finally, he like, after he, he survives his uh, scorching, he returns with a pair of horses. And, well, that was a friend of the. the yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, a, that was right. A, an acquaintance, a buddy of the scorched, brings a, you know, like, very valuable horse uh, for the person who had been cut up. You know, still not enough. I yeah, mean, well, they are, take offense. Like, you know, you're saying we're worth as much as the horse. A, yeah, we're we're looking at a group of people who are like sex workers, who are continually devalued as human beings. And on this one 
you know, instance, they dig in like ticks. They're like, no, nothing less than death. You know, we want the son of a bitch who did this gone. Uh, like that, that's what the price should be for doing that to one of us. Because like our whole lives, her whole lives are made up of taking crap off of these people. We want revenge. Well, and in comes the kid who, you know, is related to one of the former outlaws that they ran with. Yeah, and has heard about Bill Money. He knows Bill Money's past. His pa told him all about him. Yeah, what a badass this guy was back in the day, how dangerous he was. And so the kid's like, I, I want you in on this. You know, like, I'll, I'll cut the deal right in half, you know, half the money for you, half the money for me, if we go and we do this job. And, you know, the guy's down on his luck, you know. He's, he's having trouble making the pig farm work. The pig Yeah, first he tells the kid to go uh, no. fly a kite and kick rocks, and then uh, he thinks about it after oh, a night of having to deal with a bunch of sick hogs yeah and the next day he's like maybe this is not such a bad idea at all five hundred dollars like uh that that's a really significant amount of money that's a start over in life uh, and even if he splits it in half with his one trustworthy buddy that he has left from the old days a guy who's known him a long time ned roundtree there's, yeah, ned. there's morgan freeman's character uh you know 250 bucks. Yeah, it certainly start up the whole. You know, I mean, he could save his farm or move somewhere else and do something else with his life. Take they catch up. Yeah, they catch back up to the kid and he tries to play like, oh, I don't need you guys. You're a bunch of washed up nobodies anyway. And well, yeah, he finds out that, yeah, that's, uh, well, he'll, he'll take back those words later. Yeah. Well, the, the, the kid's eyesight isn't as good as he claims. Yeah, he's he's playing tough. extra tough. He, you know, like he's aiming real hard uh, to establish himself as a badass because he knows what kind of company he's riding with. And he's trying to establish his chops, which he doesn't really have. Uh, but he never killed a man before. Indeed, uh, true to their word, they, they drift into town. You happen to get introduced to another character now. Here's another good character that hadn't had a lot of big roles lately, but uh, help remind us who he was. English Bob. Oh, yeah. Uh, it also drifting into town. The words of the reward has gotten out. And this means that scumbags are drifting into town. The sheriff does not want scumbags drifting into town. But the sheriff himself, played by Gene Hackman, Little Bill. Oh, boy, Little Bill. Little Bill has a history himself. He goes back to the bad old days of like running wild and he remembers who's who like the, the who's who list of, of well yeah they all knew each other richard harris is uh, richard com harris comes back in here fantastic as english bob just coming back and regaling everybody how these sort of things don't happen in england because they're too civilized oh oh well he was talking about the death the assassination, assassination of, of president lincoln right and these sort of things don't happen because the mere presence of royalty would cow you in yes. the submission. You know, like yes. it would feel awe and that you would it would not be possible for you to, you know, pull the trigger. Whereas a president, oh well, no, what's even stopping you? So. Too bad Archduke Ferdinand wasn't I, uh, under that protection. Yeah, I right? know. That, that that spell appears to have worn off uh, after the advent of the 20th century. Uh, Sorry. Uh, for no, the in any chuckle. case, English Bob drifts into town uh, with a dime a uh, penny novel uh, yeah, he's, novelist running one side of him. Yeah, he's got a chronicler of his deeds, uh, which... The duck of death. <laughs> it, 
It's it's Duke. It's Duke. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, well, that having a chronicler with you uh, does not excuse you from entering town without uh, handing over your firearms. That's which, the ordinance. Uh, and big whiskey. And they they had posted signs for this, like at every entrance. Uh, and, you know, people are expected to, you know, like you come into town, you turn in your weapons, and then you get them back and you leave town. Uh, well, little Bill's not fooled. He knows why English Bob is there. Like, this is a mercenary thing. He is here to fulfill this, you know, uh, this bounty hunt. And impromptu. Wow. What an ass beating is delivered to English Bob. Uh, you know, he bends the revolver, takes the revolvers to the farrier and has the smith bend them in two. Yeah. Here's your guns back. <laughs> oh, man. So there, you, you can admire little Bill on one hand. He's cruel, obviously, but he, he is the oppositional character here. He is, in, in many senses, the symbolic representation of a justice that is not really about justice, but just about keeping a lid on order. Okay. Making an example out of certain people. And so, yeah, it's brutal. It's it's often unfair. It has little to do with, like, law and order. It, it has mostly to do with, like, I keep it quiet here. You know, I protect an example. Right. And it, it falls short morally. Like, everyone's morally gray. In this movie, there are no yeah, characters. he's not a completely it unrelatable a character. But he does, yeah. he does come off as sometimes exceptionally cruel and people tolerate it because he usually takes it out on a very few, a select group of people. Yeah. This, as he calls them, the trash and the scum. If you come drifting into town with guns on your hip and you think you're going to be a hot shot and terrorize the locals, he will track you down with three or four deputies and there will be a whole bunch of people aiming guns at you. It will not be like, I'll meet you in the square alone at noon. And no, no glory. Just, you will get shot by half a dozen people. If I have to come looking for him, you will wish to God I hadn't. Uh, and you know, he doesn't owe them an explanation. He doesn't owe them a warning. If you want to swagger and the you know, signs are up, play that you game, should have known. You're responsible for what's about to happen to you. So that's the established level of brutality that was needed to end the reign of like wandering gunfighters gun just and... tearing up every bar they ever encountered. And Bill Money, as it happens, was one of those bad people from long ago who fell in love, met a beautiful woman, you know, and, and had kids and had reformed his life and tried really hard to be a better man. But when he crosses paths with little Bill and had not turned in his gun, you know, like they entered town in the rain in the dark, he did not see the sign. And little Bill decides to make a point of that in their first meeting uh, <laughs> in the bar and just basically delivers a beat down. Uh, well, he's healing up out of town and, uh, you know, as soon the as they're kid ready. And, uh, uh, Roundtree go back in town to get some free ones from the, uh, <clears throat> working out, getting it a little advanced on their pay. And uh, from the gals. She brought one of them rides out the one that got her face cut and she tells him, what happened and yeah while bill got mad and when he gets our little bill got mad and when he got mad 
he went over the line and ended up killing. Oh, uh, Ned Roundtree. But Ned Roundtree. mind you, in the midst of this, they have, like, they did kill the cowboy that they were looking for. Yeah, like, like, him and the kid go out there. They weren't clearly sure. identified as the people who did it, but, like, somebody done did it, and it's probably them new guys. He goes in there, and uh, while he's in the outhouse. Got him in the outhouse. It's pow. I'm not taking that shit. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. They, what a way to go. So, the movie kind of. Non-glorious. Okay, yeah, this is not a heroic struggle. This is I'm here to assassinate. Totally sour is the kid on this whole thing. There's no, you know, I'm shooting him, shooting a dog. Yeah. No, you're you're killing a man. Yeah. All the thing. Kill yeah. A man. Take away all he's got and all he's ever gonna have. So yeah, they they killed Ned Roundtree, and so yeah, um, the the sheriff while getting information out of Ned Roundtree causes his death. And, oh, man, the hell that is unleashed by that when Bill Money gets his true revenge. So, I, wow, you know, just when the bills are, when the beans are spilled and everything is done, it's just a very large number of dead people in that town as Bill Money goes back yeah. to his wicked old ways one last time. He extracts some information from Ned Roundtree, and they're going to go looking for him. He, he yep. rounds up a posse and gets his whole uh, deputies <laughs> together, and they're on there plotting it. Uh, the Biller, Billard Parlor, Billiard Parlor, that this whole thing went down in originally. And in comes Demon yeah, Bill the, Money. Now, the real Bill Money, the guy underneath all of that polished exterior, that trying to be reformed, trying to be a nice guy, trying to be a parent. He just lets the bad guy go long enough to accomplish this job <laughs> one last time the demon comes out and boy does he step out and yep everybody's dead at the end except him and well uh, the uh chronicler the the <laughs> penny novelist and he's trying to extract information supposedly so he can have a new person to chronicle with i was lucky in the order <laughs> ah, but i'll sure tell you this i know who's going to be last <laughs> Well, who is the but first? Again, I've always been lucky when it comes to killing things. I've killed everything that walks, flies, swims, or crawls. And now, little Bill, I'm here to kill you. Yeah. Oh, man. Go to hell, William Money. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it ends on a nice little note. I like that he went became a soft goods retailer, a fabric sales. Yeah, he moved out west and opened a little store uh, yep. with his kids because, like, the kid did not want that blood money, you know. Yeah, so, he is like, you can have it. I don't want nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah but that's our that is our examination of you know, like <laughs> the Eastwood movies uh, that we love most. And the way you can use them in gaming. Yeah, there's a lot of good role-playing games out there. That if you find some new ones, like we said before, let us know. But yeah, that's going to do it for us. We've uh, well worn out our welcome here. So we're going to just wind it up and uh, say goodbye. So until next time, may, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. Mm -hmm.